Mike Pinella, would you like to ask your question next? I feel like my question's so superficial after such a wonderful question from Mark. Hi, Tom. Um, my question Hi. is, um, you've, you've spoken many times about us coming back over and over again uh, into this PMR and that we're, we're never actually done. And my, my question is, if something were to happen to the earth where it all just ended for whatever reason, what do you think would be the mechanism for how it's decided where we would go next to continue on with our, with our learning? Oh, well, there could be a lot of different answers to that. Um, you know, you would continue on. Of course, immediately you'd be back in the chat room, if you will. You know, consciousness interacting with other other consciousness. IUOCs communicating and sharing data back and forth with IUOCs. That's the big chat room. All right, so you'd be back there uh, immediately. I think the system wouldn't take too long to find places for you. Now, there's a couple of things it could do. It could uh, put you in other um, virtual realities that have tight rule sets like ours. So you just have to go learn a few new ropes and, you know, how cultures worked in those various places. And it would have those seats that it could, that it could put us. But another thing it could do, it could just do a, uh, it could go back, say, uh, let's say we end because, uh, you know, a meteor pops out of nowhere, you know, a big rock, you know, a hundred miles across and it just hits and totally polarizes the earth and turns it into dust, right? Something like that. Well, it could always go back in time before that happened and delete the meteor and start it back up again. You know, it could do things like that. It's a virtual reality. So if it suddenly needed seven and a half billion seats and it couldn't just spread that out among other realities, it would just have to start this back up at some place. Um, some place where we could pretty much take up where we left off. There may be a bit of a, of a uh, discontinuity in the beginning. But in a generation or two, that would be forgotten, you know, and uh, it could do that. But it would find something to do. It wouldn't be like that would be a, okay, you guys have to wait, you know, another you know, billion years before we can find something for you to do. There'd be something that it would generate to do to keep you busy and keep you working. Um, it's not that hard in a digital reality to come up with a new, a new space, a new simulation, or restart an old one. But I suspect that the system would actually be aware of that meteor since it's also a virtual meteor that the system is computing. <laughs> it would probably get, you know, it could it could get rid of it, you know, if it wanted to before anybody even knew it was there. Excuse me. So, yeah, it'll the system will always find a way. It wants to evolve and we're part of its strategy to evolve. So it would find something for us to do other than just hang out in the chat room. Thanks, Tom. Okay, thank you. Um, Oliver, I don't have access to those who are waiting to ask a question on audio only. Um, I understand Melissa was wanting to ask a question. Is she available? Um, she has a microphone, so Melissa, if you're unmuted. Are you there, Melissa? Uh, she's not unmuting, so maybe she's not there right now. Okay. So well, I, I hope... I, I just pulled her question up. Uh, shall, okay. we just, shall we just do it? Yes, that'd be great. Um, her question was, when doing healing, distant or in person, is there a time delay before results are usually seen or felt? Uh, is it instant or does it occur over days and weeks and months? Sometimes it's instant. Sometimes there's a time delay, uh, Melissa. And the reason is that what you're doing is moving probabilities around. And sometimes it's more or less difficult to do that. Uh, depends on how much probability you have to move. If you don't have to move much probability um, and it's something easy, you know, the change is easy. There's a lot of uncertainty about the change. Then it can happen more instantly. If there is less uncertainty about it and it's a little more difficult to make that change and the change would have to be made more slowly. In other words, not to create a, uh, a discontinuity in our reality, 
then it'll take more time. Um, sometimes when you work on people, you're really working on their attitude as much as you're working on their body. And it may take a little while for them to actually get focused and start uh, making a change or stop putting negative things into, you know, into poor health. So it can, it can be instantaneous or close to it. Probably not instantaneous in, in that sense, unless it's a very, very simple thing to do. But it can be pretty quick, and it sometimes can take days or weeks. You can work on a person, and then, you know, two weeks later, uh, you get the result. That's a possibility. Two weeks is a fairly long time, so I guess if you were trying to judge whether it was you or whether it just happened anyway, if something happened two weeks later, I would say I wouldn't give you 100% on that one. You know, if you're working on somebody that got better two weeks later, I'd say maybe you had something to do with that or maybe it just happened by itself. So I wouldn't make that quite so evidential. The things that happen more quickly would be more evidential. So anything over a couple of weeks, I'd say, would be a little too long to put it in the evidential column. But doesn't mean that it wasn't what you did, you know, what you were working on that it, that it didn't help. It can take two weeks. It can take a month for all the probabilities to work themselves out. Often it's not as simple as just changing one thing. Often things are related. So when you change this thing, it affects something else, which affects something else. And you can have a whole string of things that are affected and part of an interaction. And you can't just make that happen all quickly. Sometimes those interactions take a little time before they work themselves out. So that's why it could be a month later as the probabilities shift in order to make this more effective, what you're trying to do, then it'll take that much time. Typically, when I do healing, I find that uh, I have an effect within, um, you know, within minutes or within at least a couple of days. That's just kind of typical. Sometimes it is a couple of days. Sometimes as much as a week, but mostly it's within a few days or it happens right away or nothing happens at all. You know, that's also a possibility when it turns out it wasn't really a good idea anyway. Okay, um, let's see. She has another one, part two. Oh, does it take? No. Uh, do we change our reality and are we responsible for our reality? And the two sides of this are, is that we are responsible for our reality. No, we do not make our reality entirely. We're interacting with a lot of other people. Okay, so the I guess the good news and the bad news is, depending on which way you look at it, is that you do have a lot of of influence over your reality. If you're an unhappy person and a sad person and have a lot of pain, uh, most of that is probably self-caused. So you can remove that pain and become a happy person that's more satisfied. Okay, so you have the ability to change it. Now, so the good news about that is that you can change it. You can become a happy person. You can become successful. You can learn how to function at the being level. You can do these things. The bad news is, or I should say the, the negative way of looking at it is, oh, I'm miserable and it's my fault. I'm miserable and you're going to blame the victim. You're going to blame me. I have all this pain and uh, I know it's not because I love pain. It's because these people are not doing what I want and those people are, are not nice and that's why I'm in all this pain. But realizing that you have to take responsibility for that is always not a pretty picture for people to say that, you know, they are responsible for most of their pain. And that's not always true. You're not always responsible for all of your pain. Sometimes stuff happens. You step on a nail and it hurts your foot. You're not necessarily responsible. Like, you know, why did I step on that nail? Well, it's just stuff happens. You know, the nail was there and you weren't looking and it happened. Okay. So, there's a lot of things that just happen because they do. Everything is not part of a, somebody's plan. So there's that factor as well. But mostly, you do have a lot of influence over your reality. 
Good news, you can change it. Bad news, you have to take responsibility for it. All right, thank you, Tom. Ingo, you have a couple of questions for Tom. If you would like to go ahead, please do so. Yeah, thank you, Donna. Hello, everyone, and hello, Tom. All right, Ingo. Hi. Um, I start practicing remote viewing. In some cases, it works well, and it's amazing. It's like, wow, it really touches me inside. Mm -hmm. um, in the cases where it doesn't work well, I usually can't distinguish between my thoughts and the information I ask for, or I miss the data completely. Um, is more practice in meditation one way to improve the ratio of positive results? And when we request other data, maybe health data, or what would be if I had made another decision, is the process of asking and getting Uh, other information similar to remote viewing or are there differences? Thank you. Okay. Um, practice is probably the best way uh, also to, to, to get better. But also understanding what you're doing with the remote viewing is important as well and how it works because that will give you a little leg up on just trial and error. Otherwise, it's just trial and error. Try something, see how it works. And, and if it does do more of it, it doesn't do less of it. That's kind of a long haul because there's a lot of things you could try. It may take a long time before you sort through all of them. So understanding a little of the theory was helpful. Um, making sure that you can get into that being level state and do so quickly and then get out of it just as quickly as you can drop into it and then come out of it. That is very valuable to a remote viewer, um, where you let things be, you just experience. Um, that's critical to being successful at remote viewing. And you probably know the other things that are successful. You don't try to guess, you don't try to interpret, you don't try to make something out of it. You just report what you have. You just open and put down what you, what you have. There's some tools that you can use You can see things on screens, you know, you can like have a monitor up in front of you and you reach up and touch the button. And when you do, the the thing that's hidden in the box will come up on the screen. You know, well, these are just mind tricks to help you get into a state at the being level and then be ready for the information when it comes. <clears throat> Otherwise, sometimes people miss it because the information comes almost instantly your answer to what's in the box if you're remote viewing or what's at these coordinates often will happen so fast that if you're not practiced it'll be gone by the time you're there so doing something like well okay here's my monitor and here's my finger's going to hit the button when i hit the button you know the the image will come up that's a way of slowing it all down so that you can slip into the right state and, and then ask for the data and not have it slip by you so there's lots of little tricks like that you can you can learn. And if you just go to remote viewing sites or you know, even some of the times I talk about it, you you can get some of those hints and just try them. Some of them will work for you, some of them won't. But just try those out. They're, they're metaphorical, basically, but they help you focus your intent. So your last question is, uh, <clears throat> is it about the same as seen auras is it about the same as you know most any other any other way that you're gathering information and the answer is fundamentally yes it is it's the same sort of thing it's just done in a more narrowly defined context to where you're looking for specific information rather than looking for a past life or looking for uh you know um the, the a person's you know, uh, what, uh, health body, or looking at their emotional body. You know, it's, a, it's just in a different context. But yes, it's all done the exact same way. Into the being level, set your intent. You know, it's like a query to the database. You have, a, you need a clear and focused intent on what you're going to do. Then you need to get out of the way, have an open mind, and be able to accept whatever comes. And you need to get your intellect to sit down and be quiet. Otherwise, your intellect will just, you know, talk over everything. It'll, it won't let you actually 
<laughs> have much success if you can't tell your intellect to be quiet. So pretty much the same thing. You know, remote viewers started out only being able to see other places on our planet. They'd remote view by coordinate, you know, a certain Latin long, and they would go look and see what was at that particular Latin long. I mean, latitude and longitude. And that's what remote viewers did. That's why it was called remote viewing. You would view a particular place on this planet. And then they realized that they really weren't uh, limited to being just on this planet. And they started remote viewing the backside of the moon and what was happening in Alpha Centauri and other things. But that's a little hard to be evidential because now you're getting things that there's not a lot of evidence, you see, to be able to prove it. But they were able to do enough things. They go back in history. They were remote viewing, you know, what was going on on the Titanic, you know, as it was sinking. So they could remote view that. And then they realized they could remote view into the probable future. And they could do that. Well, what have they done? They've taken basic remote viewing and turned it into collecting data from the database on a host of other things besides just places on the planet. So over the last probably two decades, remote viewing has broadened its scope to where it's not a whole lot different than, uh, you know, remote viewers still don't remote view past lives or energy bodies perhaps, but they, well, maybe one day, once they realize that that's just as easy to do as anything else, then they will start doing that too. But now they do go to the Titanic and remote view, you know, things in history. Um, though they would never think of going to a database and looking at it. Although they get the same kind of information, you know, they get, they get visuals and like running a movie and that kind of stuff. So yeah, your last question is, yeah, it's all the same. It's collecting data that's there. And it's only the only thing that makes a remote viewer different than somebody who sees ours is the context of what they're doing and the kind of targets that they're, you know, that they're interested in. Thank you. Ingo, did you have another question for Tom? Um, yes. If you would like, um, you can go ahead with that. Okay, thank you. Um, Tom, you mentioned uh, that you... Uh, didn't get much sleep when you worked in Bob's lab <laughs> and that you compensate that with your meditation in the lab. Um, did it work so well that you were able to stay awake during the meditation experience and that you could still fulfill your responsibilities during the day? Yes, it did work. Surprisingly, it did work. And I'm not sure I really can justify why it did work uh, other than I needed for it to work and the system needed for it to work. Otherwise, I wouldn't have either been able to pay my bills or I wouldn't have been able to work at the lab. One of those was going to have to quit if it didn't work. So it just did. Now, it had some effect, uh, though I was often only getting two and three hours of sleep at night and I wouldn't get and I, I do that, you know, all week. Um, at work, I was doing mathematics. I was building uh, uh, physics models of, of uh, you know, physical things, equipment and other things like that. So I was doing a lot of math and physics and working on a computer. And basically, I just let my body go. And I do all of that most, you know, within consciousness, if you will. So if people, if you were to ask people that, that worked with me, they would have said that I was a bit of a flake and uh, didn't seem to really know where I was or what I was doing most of the time. But I seemed to be pretty good about coming up with good answers and writing good programs and, and good solutions. So I wasn't normal in the sense that everybody else maybe was chatty and interacting and that sort of thing. I just kind of go into the inside, let my body kind of slump there at the desk and I'd go on working and come up with good solutions. So I didn't get away scot-free in the sense that um, I was, I guess I got a reputation of being the absent-minded professor and not exactly knowing what was going on at the time, you know, in my surroundings because I just shut all that out and worked mentally because my work was not physical work. It was all mental work. So that worked. And when I got into the lab, 
I would be tired. And yes, I could have gone to sleep if I thought, well, I'm just going to take a nap. I could have fallen asleep in probably 10 seconds, but I didn't. When I got to the lab, I had work to do. I had things to figure out. You know, I had places to go. I had things to learn. And I was geared up enough and and, uh, focused enough on the learning and the growing and the experience that that just kept me awake. I was, uh, I don't know, probably used up more adrenaline than I would normally perhaps Adrenaline being a, a, a thing that is, you know, wakes you up. But I did that for not just a few weeks, but I did that for years. You know, I had at least three or four years that I was working at that kind of a load. And sometimes I'd sleep, you know, for, you know, 15 hours on a weekend occasionally. I do that sort of thing. Like on a Sunday when I wasn't going out to see Bob, I'd, I'd maybe go to bed early and not wake up until, you know, way after lunch. But so I had little catch up times every once in a while on weekends, but weekends were times that I did go out to Bob's usually took family with me, put young son and wife in the booth and, you know, use them as, uh, as uh, part of the database. So it was, uh, I don't know exactly how it worked, but it did. And yes, it had effects on me. And no, I didn't just do everything the way a normal awake person was, but I was able to do both jobs well. Actually, I found myself more productive. I could come up with solutions better when I wasn't really so much a physical person in an office, you know, doing things that I could just doing it in my mind was easier. And, uh, I ended up getting better results more quickly that way than if I did it some other way. Got my intellect involved in it. I just have a problem and I start grinding onto the solution. Yeah, my, uh, I did have a reputation as an absent-minded professor type. That, you know, somebody that you had to go up and touch on the shoulder and say it's time to eat lunch. You know, one of, one of those people. All right, thank you, Inga. Uh, we do have another person on the audio mode, and that is Nicholas. And Nicholas, if you're ready to ask your question, please go ahead. Nicholas, do we have he, Nicholas? He's he's on listen only mode, so he cannot talk. So okay, he doesn't he doesn't have a talk. We have uh, another person on. I will get back to Nicholas, and we will ask your question. For now, uh, Bodan, if you, you have a question. And uh, you can go ahead with that, and I will search out Nicholas's question. Hello, Tom. Hello, everyone. Hi. Uh, I had a very similar question to Inga. He just asked it about uh, uh, correlation between meditation and sleep. And it seemed like meditation can change sleep pattern and uh, uh, necessity to sleep and schedule. You just answered this question pretty much. It's the same. Can I uh, possibly ask different question instead of this that I didn't type? Is it possible? Mm-hmm. Sure, go ahead. Uh, okay, I have son and uh, he is like millennial generation. And uh, uh, I see a lot of uh, people uh, there... In, in this generation, they are addicted to gadgets, uh, virtual reality, and games, um, social media. Is there any way to help them to overcome this problem, to get uh, so-called real life and, you know, be more participant and maybe, uh, I, I don't know, help them to resolve this issue? Thank you. Well, yes, I'd be real careful about defining that as a problem. It can be a problem. People can get so um, distracted or focused on a, you know, on a game that they stop actually interacting with, you know, with other human beings and they end up uh, missing a lot of important part of life. And and then I would, I would say that's probably a problem. But if 
they're spending a lot of time on a game, but they still do other things and they still interact and they still go to school and they still, you know, have other interests. They just have maybe instead of the time that most people spend watching TV, they spend playing video games. Then I don't know that I'd call that a problem. You know, video games are also an interaction. There's learning. There's strategy. There's, there's cooperation. There's a lot of things going on in a video game that are the same kind of things you learn when you're not in a video game. So the, depends on what games they're playing. You know, if it's all death and destruction, that, that's probably not a good way to spend all your time. But it depends on the game. Many games have uh, a similar kind of lessons that you can learn there that you could learn out with other people. And particularly when kids are at that awkward uh, social age where they're not quite sure what to do or when to do or how to do it. And interacting with the opposite sex is a big challenge and interacting with people in general. And they're too young to be children, but not old enough yet to be adults. And they're kind of stuck in this place that's socially awkward. Um, focusing on video games seems like a, 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 a almost a, an easy way out of that awkwardness that you can uh, spend your time doing that. I don't think in general that hurts. I think they'll still grow up and be fine adults and integrate back into the world uh, a little later as they uh, get older and take jobs and do other sorts of things. So it can be a problem, but it's not necessarily a problem. It's just different. You know, I didn't do that in my day because there were no such things as electronic games in my day. You know, we had to deal with wood and cardboard and metal to play with toys and things. We didn't have those things that were that entertaining. But so it's different. And oftentimes we look at differences and see problems just because they're different. So I'd say if the if the child is still functioning reasonably well, you know, in the rest of the world, when he is functioning in the rest of the world, the fact that they're playing video games to an excess is probably just part of their age. And they're probably uh, learning things that that will be all right. And they can catch up their social skills or other things. They can catch up a little later when they're a little older and a little easier to to deal with those kinds of things. So I don't think it's so much a, a problem unless, you know, like I say, if, if the game is one that is just, you know, nothing but graphic violence, then I'd be a little more concerned that that's not really a good environment to, you know, to soak yourself in. But if the games are a, a selection of things and, <clears throat> and it's not just terrible graphic violence, but it's pretend violence, you know, cartoon violence where people get shot, but they just fall over or they disappear or something. Then, you know, kids can separate that. That, that doesn't really turn them into violent people. They understand that uh, that's a that's a pretend world. Uh, graphic violence is different because it's not intellectual. It gets you down into the emotional level. So it can leave some lasting scars down at the being level. Whereas if it's all up at the intellectual level because it's very cartoonish, then you know, that you can let go of easily. It doesn't really hurt anything very deep. I know the, the difference there. So it's just the way things are these days is that kids, particularly teenagers, are going to spend a lot of time playing video games because it's a safe space for them. Anytime they want to, they can put it on pause and go get something to eat they can they're more in control of their environment when they're in a game they can interact they can interact or not interact they can turn it off when they need to turn it off and turn it on when they need it on whereas if they're in a in a room with you know uh, five adults and and 10 teenagers their own age they've got all kinds of other issues going on, you know, what's appropriate and what's not, and who's going to think what about what, and they got all the social stuff going on. It's just safe to play a video game. All right. So they're, they're, they're maybe cutting class on some of their, on some of their tougher lessons, but they will have to learn all these lessons eventually. But a year or two older, those lessons will be a lot easier to learn. So I don't wouldn't necessarily see it as something that needs to be fixed. It may be something that just needs to be tolerated and they'll still grow up anyway. 
it's, uh, you know, I suspect our, our parents probably thought that about us. You know, we did things. We, we spent our time, what, watching TV or things that was not things that they did. They never watched the TV. And here are the kids these days spend all their time watching TV. You know, well, now everybody spends a lot of their time watching TV. It uh, probably wasn't a good, you know, a really good thing either, but it's not overcomable. So does that help answer your question? Yes, partially, yes. Um, uh, what would you think will be the appropriate age, or is there such a thing that uh, they should overcome this problem? Like, let's say, maybe they 25, 24, 30. <laughs> is, there, yeah. is there any limits for, you know, growing? Any? No, some people grow up quicker than others. You know, it's just like that. Some people are slow. Slow boom, slow, slow to bloom longer. I've kind of noticed that in general with uh, kids. They seem to be, they take a longer time to grow up than, you know, when I was their age. When I was their age, when you were 17 or 18, you started getting adult responsibilities. And at 18, the parents said, out of the house, you're on your own. Good luck. And uh, that was basically the way the world worked. You know, you, uh, you were expected to fend for yourself and make your own way. And uh, there wasn't a lot of hand-holding and the rest of it. But it's not like that these days at all. And I think, you know, some things were lost, the independence and the, and the you know, being a go-getter and feeling like uh, you have the responsibility to make something of your life and all of that sort of thing. You know, that was good and it was bad. You know, it was good in the sense that a lot of people were motivated and they grew up quicker and, and made more choices that were had more content to them. But on the other hand, there were a lot of people who were neurotic and who had trouble and who failed because they couldn't live up to, you know, somebody's expectations. And, you know, there was a lot more of that, too. So, you know, there's good sides and downsides to that. But some kids are just slow. If they're slow to grow up, I'd try to see if there isn't anything you could do to help them get involved in something, some other activity, to join an organization, to, uh, you know, go to school and learn how to, you know, do something in particular, you know, for a trade or a, an education, anything that they were interested in. And one thing usually leads to another. So if you could get them interested in something else, I think that would be a thing. But if they're just vegetating in their room and, you know, they're 25 years old or 30 years old and they haven't gotten a job yet and you're still supporting them, I think it's time for a little tough love, you know, and show them the thumb and say, you know, you need to go live your own life. You know, you're not growing up here and you need to go get it. So I'm cutting off the, you know, I'm cutting off the allowance and whatever. Go do your own thing in your own way and then help them do that. You know, help them find a job or help them find a school where they can find a job or something. But yeah, eventually you get to the point where it's time for some tough love that they need to get kicked out of the nest. You can't keep them as nestlings forever, but it just depends on them. Are they just slow or are they stuck? If they're stuck, then they probably need a little help to get out of that nest and some tough love is probably required. If they're not stuck, but they're just slow, then you can maybe give them some more time. But sure, someplace you have to make that decision, whether they're just slow and making progress or whether they're stuck and they need a good kick in the seat to get them unstuck. I mean, back in back in my time, you know, you got the you got the swift kick in the pants, you know, uh, no matter what you were doing, because, you know, the parents had had carried you so far and they were just weren't interested in carrying you, you know, usually past about the age of 18 when you could go get a job or go fend for yourself. So that uh, is not like that anymore. And I'm glad it's not like that anymore. I don't think that was a great place. I think that was was uh, you know pushed sometimes people to grow up too fast. But I know I know of people who still have you know 28 year olds living at home you know uh, room and board for free, and that's probably not a good thing. By then they probably need to start making a life, and they need to pay their own way. And if they stay at home, they need to pay rent, and they need to pay for their food, and they need to become responsible for taking care of themselves. Yeah, there's a time to put your foot down, no doubt. Thank you. 
All right, thank you. Uh, I'm going to read Nicholas's question because he's on a listen-only microphone. Uh, one of his questions was concerning climate change and that that sort of thing that you have talked about previously. So I think you've already addressed that. The next question is, when he started this journey into inner self, he was caught up with it 24-7. Um, his business and family and things have taken over a lot of that. Are there any things that he can do to remind him that um, this game and this work he needs to do is a 24-7 job, and how, how could he balance those well? Well, you have to realize that part of your job here is to take care of your responsibilities. It's not just about you. So yes, you do have to spend some time, say, in meditation when it's when it, uh, you know, you're not uh, maybe part of your family or taking care of your children or taking care of your, you know, your wife or something else or your elderly parents. But you also have responsibilities. You have responsibilities to make sure the mortgage gets paid every day. You know, the car payment gets paid not every day but every month. Uh, you have responsibilities to. Uh, take care of people, to be there for them, you know, to help kids with their homework, you know, to give them encouragement. You have responsibilities in raising children. You have responsibilities in, in with a relationship. You can't just expect not to, you know, to give anything or to, you know, to be part of anything and, and uh, still, still join the club. You're a husband or a wife or a child. You have responsibilities. So you have to do your responsibilities. That's part of it. And you also have to work on yourself. But those things are not incompatible. Doing the things you're responsible for are things that help you grow. These are the things you do in that being level. You get in the zone with those. You know, you get in the zone with your child doing homework to where you're right at your child's level, interacting with them with ways that they can understand you don't just say, well, that's easy. Look, da 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 see? And then push the paper back at them. That's not helping them learn anything. You know, you have to be where they are and give them the, you know, give them the help they need to figure things out on their own and so on. So you get in the zone with them. You get in the zone, you know, with your, with your significant other. You be with them. You share their feelings. What's, what's important to them? And you do that as part of your own growth. That's part of your giving, part of your your being with others. That's where a lot of this, that's where a lot of the, you know, the rubber meets the road in relationship more than anything else. So all of these responsibilities that you have are also opportunities for your personal growth. It's not, well, I can do personal growth or I can, you know, worry about my family and do my responsibilities to get the mortgage paid. You need to be doing all of that and making all of that a growth process. How you approach that job, how you approach paying that mortgage and, and, uh, you know, how well you execute your, you know, the business you have when you're at work as well as the relationships you have away from work. So all of that needs to be part of your, your growing up. You don't grow up in a vacuum. All right. Thank you, Tom. Um, I just want to point out that an MBT forum question came in from somebody, that's his nickname, on Eckhart Tolle's Living in the Present Moment, um, The Power of Now. And I think you did also address that with your question from Mark on living in the being level. And I think that was, that was probably covered in that, living in the present moment. Um, yes, I, I agree with Eckhart and his philosophy for the most part. Um, Pamela read his books and uh, discussed some of them with me, and I found a few minor things that I thought were probably uh, not right. But for the most part, for the big part, you know, for the 99%, Eckhart and I see the same world and see often many of the same sorts of things. So, uh, yeah, he does not talk about big pictures and, and, you know, and why we're here and entropy reduction, and he doesn't go into any of that, but he does talk about, how to live this life, how to, how to deal with our existence. And on those issues, uh, uh, he gets it mostly right. And we agree on 
probably just about everything. There was a one or two things that I can't remember. I don't even remember what they were, but it wasn't a big part of his philosophy. It was just this kind of a side issue that uh, I disagreed with. Had something to do with negative energy, maybe. Don't really remember. But um, Eckert's a good man who has done a lot of good to help people see a more productive way of living their lives. And the power of now means the power of being authentic, the power of being in the being level, the power of being in the zone and paying attention to everything you do and why you're doing it. And, and uh, yes, it all puts you into a non-intellectual being mode where you have intuition and, and you can connect in a, in, a, in a larger reality with all the people around you. Good stuff. It is. All right, our next question comes from Bartos. From what I gather, sexuality seems to be a part of the rule set of this PMR, but also an expression of love. Although it seems very primitive, is sexuality made up from the rule set for the purpose of living here on Earth, or something that is indeed a tangible force driving the entropy away in the big picture? Um, sexuality comes in with the avatar. Okay, this avatar was part of a simulation. It had to evolve in this simulation. Things evolve by surviving and procreating, and the procreation part is what we call sexuality. So it's a part of our instincts. It's a part of the rule set and the way that the avatar evolved under this rule set. So it's a, it's, you know, it's not a, you know, I was going to say, you know, it's not, it's, a, it's not a bad thing. It's not such even so much a good thing. It's just the thing. It's the way we are. And we need to accept the way we are as, you know, the way we are. So it's something to be dealt with. It's not something to be suppressed. It's not even something generally to be, what was the word before, uh, transmuted. It just is the way we are. We should accept it. And not so much, it's not like you, you control it as it is that you, you have, you have a, a consciousness that is trying to lower entropy and you then work toward that lowering entropy. So if you come to odds with your sexuality and it's not, it's on a path to higher entropy and you're on a path to lower entropy, well then you just do the low entropy thing because you're in charge and it's your choice. You see, you always have the choice, but sexuality is not a good thing to repress or try to try to, uh, manipulate or try to suppress if you do those things it'll just make you crazy you know it'll make you neurotic because it's a fundamental part of you and you try to repress things that are fundamental they just bubble out in other ways so yes it's something that uh, just has to do with the rule set and the purpose of living here on earth and it is a tangible force that can move entropy either way it can be an expression of love and caring and sharing. It can also be an expression of domination and and uh, uh, even violence. So as far as being high entropy or low entropy, that's what you do with it. That's not the thing itself. Sex is not inherently uh, um, going to lower your entropy or raise your entropy. It's how you interact with your own sexuality, how you do, how you uh, interact with others with your sexuality and the quality of your choices. So if your quality of your choices are high, then your se sexual interaction with others is also going to be meaningful and positive and be, um, you know, a positive thing in your evolution, not a negative thing. So, uh, so both of those are true. It can be a driving force, you know, um, uh, for positive or for lower entropy if we make poor choices. The key is the choice, and the choice is always ours. The instinct should not be denied, but it shouldn't also be given free reign. You are the one that has to make the choices, and you have to be responsible for those choices and the outcome. Nothing to be suppressed, nothing to be gotten rid of, but... You are in charge. You, the IUOC, are in charge of what you're going to do with what you've got to work with. 
and having an avatar sex that sexuality is some of what you have to work with so just a, it just is all right thank you the next question is from eric b uh confusion about consciousness and information uh this is a question he had posted in a facebook group and it's stirred up quite a lot of confusion so let's see if we can sort it out for him if Aum, A-U-M, and that is uh, Absolute Unbounded Manifold, this is the basic uh, primordial initial being, was already conscious when it was basically nothing more than a single bit of information, then how is it possible for the bits of information that constitute a rock in one's data stream to not be conscious? Are there somehow two types of bits of information, one conscious and one not conscious? doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Thinking logically, I would say that if Alm was already conscious when it was just a single bit of information, then that means that all single bits of information should be conscious. But then we would end up in a sort of uh, panpsychism where even rocks would be conscious. I'm sure I'm misunderstanding something here. Could you please clear this up for me? Is there a fundamental difference between the information that constitutes a conscious player and the information that constitutes the data stream that a player receives. Yeah. The, the problem you're having is you're trying to derive consciousness <clears throat> um, basically, I guess, from, um, I don't know, what did I call them, reality cells. You know, I talked about you had this this thing that could make choices, it could just be in this state or that state, and it made these choices consciously. Well, that wasn't because it derived its consciousness from these consciousness cells or from anything else. It just was assumed to be conscious. The conscious beginning, that thing that could just tell that it was in state A or state B, was just assumed to be conscious. I didn't derive that consciousness logically from anything that comes into the theory as an assumption. And that assumption is, is just the consciousness exists. There was this thing, it is conscious by definition, by assumption, and all it can do is tell state A from state B. Okay, now what I was doing there wasn't trying to derive consciousness, it was trying to to um, start with the most fundamental, with the simplest expression of consciousness possible. In other words, you take consciousness with all its complexity and, and variation now, and you move it to what is the simplest state of consciousness. And the simplest thing, since consciousness information, is basically a bit. It's a one or a zero. So you reduce it to a bit, and the fact that this particular bit is conscious comes in as an assumption, not as a derivation, not as a logical um, um, part of something else. So <clears throat> that's why I say I started my theory with the two assumptions. One of them was assumption that consciousness exists. And I start with this, to, to see how consciousness evolved then, I start with the this fundamental, simple, one-bit consciousness and show how natural effects would push it to evolve in the way that it has to the system we have now with virtual realities and all sorts of other complexities you know creating this uh this simulation and and uh, you know all of that uh, stems out of this one simple cell so it's sort of like the biologists starting with the cell showing you how all the plants and all the animals and how everything else, you know, generated from a cell or a couple of cells. So you start from the simplest possible thing, maybe an amoeba, and you end up with, you know, dolphins and human beings and elephants and, and all the rest of it. Meanwhile, you pass through dinosaurs and a lot of other things that no longer exist in order for us to get here. So it's the same sort of thing that I was trying to do for consciousness. <clears throat> So the reason you're confused is you're looking for a logical derivation of that first 
awareness of that of the uh, the assumption of consciousness and it is not derived it's just an assumption and i got to that point also when i was writing the book i was writing the book about consciousness and it was well how can i derive consciousness how can you end up with nothing and end up you know come to consciousness how can you end up with raw materials and these raw materials somehow turn into consciousness and after wrestling with that for a while i realized you can't we're consciousness. We can't see consciousness in its beginning. We're parts of the consciousness system. We can't get outside of it. We can't get exterior to it. We can't see it from that uh, perspective. So we're kind of stuck with this Descartes moment is that we, you know, we exist and we're conscious. We are. And that's really the only thing we know for sure. That's where Descartes ended up, you know, his one thing he knew for sure, and that's that he existed, and that existence was thinking. He was aware. He was conscious. So Descartes got to consciousness is, and there wasn't anything else in the world that he could say for sure, anything about except that. That was the fundamental fact, and indeed, that is where you have to start with consciousness is. It exists. And then I went on to make the simplest consciousness that could possibly exist. And then I went on to derive the consciousness we know today and how it couldn't help but be evolved in the way that it's been evolved. It's been a natural progression from that simplest to the sort of thing that it is now. So that's the problem. Trying to come up with a logical derivation of the existence of consciousness, to derive consciousness logically from something else. We can't do that because we are inside consciousness and don't have the appropriate concepts, ideas, understanding, or experience to be able to do that because we are consciousness. So when I got to that point, I just said, well, I got to introduce it as an assumption. It's just an assumption. Okay, so. You know, the big the big deal about my book isn't that it shows that consciousness exists. That's not a big deal at all. I just I just said that as a as an assumption. It's why consciousness is the way it is, why we are the way we are, how we relate to consciousness and what is this virtual reality and this this business called life anyway? And what's it all about and how does it work? What are the mechanics of it? So that's really what my books are about. The idea of where did consciousness come from? is an idea that we are not equipped to answer. And that's because, one, we are inside consciousness and don't have that material necessary to answer that question, is where does it come from? So that's, um, I guess that's about all I can answer on that. And the, and the confusion is, is that, uh, we want to come up with an answer to the derivation of the existence of consciousness. Where did it come from? And it just isn't something that we can do. And I don't think that's a failure of ours. I think that's a logical necessity that we can't get there. 